tough questions. And so what I want us to do today is look at his answers and think about how can we be able as followers of Christ to answer the tough questions that were asked. And, and I'm, I love to answer people's questions. I, I prefer to have the chance to think about them sometimes. Sometimes it's hard to off the cuff you know, answer the tough ones, and I, I'm impressed with those who can think on their feet like that. Um, I, I, sometime, I sometimes just, you know, you get hit the wrong way and just the answer doesn't come to you right away. So one time we were having a, a at my previous church, the downtown church has had a Palm Sunday worship thing at the courthouse. All the churches were within walking distance, and we had this, this thing, we do it on the courthouse steps, and we would, um, you know, do some readings and prayers and stuff. And it kind of became a thing. The mayor would come. The county commissioners would come. And then after this, it was real short. And then we'd all walk, walk back to our own churches for Palm Sunday worship. Well, the news was there, the news journalist. And he came to me. And of the, all the pastors, he picked me to answer, you know, what's, you know, what's this whole Palm Sunday worship thing about? Which should be an easy question for any pastor to answer. But all of a sudden, my mind thought, uh-oh, what I'm going to say might end up in the paper. And like, it's like my mind froze. I like could not think of what even Palm Sunday was about for a moment. And so I stumbled through an answer, and this, the, the, the reporter himself kind of suggested, maybe you mean this, and actually gave a far better answer than I did. And it's like, uh, maybe he was a Christian. He was making it easy for me. But, um, you know, those off-the-cuff answers sometimes are not easy to come up with. But it's even harder when someone's using the question to try to get you, right? You know, when, when someone's coming at you with a question and they're, they're not really coming with good intentions, and then all of a sudden you realize, like Admiral Akbar at the Battle of Endor, that the whole battle against the Death Star was engineered by Emperor Palpatine, and you, you realize it's a trap. And so sometimes you get hit with a question. That's for the 10% of you who get that reference. Um, sometimes you realize a question is really meant to trap you. And it's especially bad in our age of, right, video things, right? They might ask you that question and they want to get your answer so they could use it against you in some way. Well, that is actually what's happening in our passages we looked at this morning, is the opponents of Jesus get together and they come up with three different questions. We, we had two of them in our reading. I'm going to also cover the one more after that. Three questions that, that they're using to try to get an answer and you see, Jesus had become so popular with the people that the other powers wanted to discredit Jesus somehow. They wanted to take him down a peg. So they wanted to put him in a position to say something that, that would have the crowds think twice about following this, this preacher from Galilee. And what we see is that Jesus demonstrates he can answer the tough questions. He can respond to these questions off the cuff. And, and cut through 
to the heart of what they're asking. So we're going to look at the three different questions, the traps, try to understand the viewpoint of the questioner, and how does Jesus respond to it in a way that, that gets to the heart of it, and then what, what can we learn about how we as followers of Christ can respond to the questions we're hit with in our culture. So that's, that's the goal for today. So to, to understand the questions, though, you've got to know who's asking them, who the questioners are. So first we're going to look at the, um, the Herodians. The Herodians were people who were um, loyal to Herod Antipas. This is, Herod Antipas was the ruler in Galilee and the, the son of Herod the Great. But Herod owed his power to the Romans. So this was Team Romans. These are the people who were pro-Roman rule and, and wanted to uphold that. And they, they, maybe some of them were even of the household of Herod. So when you get into a question about taxes, they're going to be the ones that, that if someone suggested you shouldn't pay the taxes, that could be a problem. The Herodians were working with a completely other group, the Pharisees. And in fact, these, these two groups were on opposite sides of the spectrum. The Pharisees were upholders of the law, or what they would have called the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. And the Pharisees, at their best, wanted to see spiritual reform among the Jewish people by, by, becoming, by upholding the laws and actually living them out. So at their best, they were trying to reform movement to get the people to actually live what God taught. But they became more and more strict and more and more um, superficial in their following of the law. And so when Jesus started challenging how they were doing that, they didn't like it. They were the popular ones. And now all the people are listening to Jesus instead of them. So they team up with their, their other side, with the Herodians, to try to trap Jesus. And they come to him with a rather simple question, it would seem, but it's one that's very dangerous, and it's simply this. Is it permissible under the law, is it right to pay the census tax? Now, they, they start off real complimentary, right? Oh, Jesus, we know how true you are in your teaching, and you're not swayed by the people who are listening to you in the audience. You will give a true answer no matter who's listening, like our friends of the Herodians who uh, can report back to Herod any answer you give. So they start off kind of weaselly, uh, maybe sarcastic, but, but they, they bring it down to, is it right, permissible, to pay the census tax to Caesar? And they, they say, yes or no, should we pay or not pay? They're demanding kind of a yes or no answer. Well, the census tax was instituted by the Romans in AD 6. It was, it was throughout the whole empire, all the non-Roman citizens, the, the, the client members of the Roman empire were, were supposed to pay this. And it's a per-person tax, a census tax. And it was um, one denarius twice a year. A denarius was a small coin small silver coin, um, that was worth a day's wages. Now, that doesn't sound too bad. Imagine if you could, in two days of work, 
pay off all your federal taxes in one year. I, I would take that deal myself. But um, now that they had other taxes, they taxed about everything, just like our governments do today. Um, but anyways, the, and it was especially not popular among the Jews because the Roman coins had the image of Caesar on it, and it said he was divine. He was a god. So there were some in Israel said, we shouldn't even touch those coins, let alone pay them to the pagan Romans. And that's, that's the tension here, is if Jesus says, go ahead and pay it, is he then caving in to those pagan Romans and participating in idolatry? And it would bring him, discredit him among the people. But then if Jesus says, no, 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 you, you, sh- you shouldn't pay it, well, then he's subject to being, you know, rebelling against Rome, and that could get him in major trouble. They give him a reason to arrest him. So that's where the trap is with this. Jesus sees through their, their pose, their hypocrisy, and says, why do, you, why do you put me to the test, right? He always answers a question with a question. Why do you put me to the test? And then he says, show me a denarius. Show me one of the coins used for paying this tax. And so someone finds a coin, and they show it to Jesus, and he says, okay, whose image is on this coin? Caesar. Most likely, the current emperor would have been Tiberius Caesar. And then flips it around, and whose inscription on the back? You know, well, that, again, that's Caesar's inscription. He, he put the word, okay. So if it has Caesar's inscription and Caesar's image, well, then give back to Caesar what is of Caesar's, but make sure you give to God what is God's. Or the literal rendering, the things of Caesar give over to Caesar, but the things of God give over to God. What is what should we give over to God? What's of God? Our worship, our devotion, our loyalty, our highest allegiance. All that belongs to God. These silly little coins, give them back to Caesar. That's nothing. But give to God what you owe him. And it says they were amazed at his teaching. There's nothing they could say to that. And I love how within this, and I would, we could go into much more detail on this if I weren't covering all three controversies, but, um, but just briefly, I think Jesus upholds two biblical principles about government. First of all, is that God, government is necessary. God himself has established government, human government in earth, to keep order and restrain evil. Romans 13 tells Christians, in Rome, by the way, to, to be subject to the governing authorities because God put them into place to restrain evil. There's a whole biblical principle when there's no restraining government that evil abounds in the land. And so it is necessary, and it is necessary to pay the appropriate taxes to, to cover the needs of government so that they can retrieve, restrain evildoers. That's why government's given the power of the sword. But the second principle is kind of sits the other side is that human government is meant to be limited. It's answerable to God, first of all, but it's meant to be limited in its powers. And, and what has happened 
over the ages, and that we see it in our country, is government starts to do more and more and more and get bigger and bigger and bigger. And the more government does, the worse it does it. Government is best when it does a few things well. And I think we've asked government to solve problems. Government is not equipped to fix. So I won't, won't go further on that because we're going to be delving into political issues. But, but that ideology is, or that, those principles are taught in the scriptures. So moving on to what's the second question, the second trap. Now we need to, to find out another player, and that is the Sadducees. This is one of the Jewish parties or sects um, in, in Jesus' time. And it was the party of the high priest. This, so the, the Herodians were team Roman. The Pharisees were team Torah. The Sadducees are team temple. These are the people that ran the temple. And the temple was the focus of their, their thinking. Right? They were the ones who, who ran the, the animal sacrificial system and how all that worked. Um, and there's a few distinctives about the, the Sadducees. First of all, they only accepted out of the Old Testament Bible only the first five books as being from God, what's known as the Torah. The rest of the Hebrew Bible was the prophets. They didn't think the prophets should, should be paid attention to only the first five books, which made sense because it's in the first five books that it talks about the temple worship and how the worship system. So what they needed to know to run the temple was all in the Torah. And so they didn't give much thought to the prophets. And then that leads to a second distinctive is they did not believe in a future resurrection, that, that there would be a rising from the dead. While the Pharisees did believe that. And so this is how you can remember who, who the Sadducees are. That because they thought that this life is all they are, and there was no life after death, therefore they were sad, you see. <laughs> You'll never forget it again. Um, so the Sadducees did not believe in a future resurrection because the, the Torah does not really talk much about that. The resurrection stuff comes more from the prophets. So all that makes sense. So they come to Jesus with a different kind of question. They come with a question that's meant to make the future resurrection, the rising from the dead, seem silly. And so they give this hypothetical of a, a woman who, marry, who gets married and doesn't have any children to a man with seven brothers, or seven, there are seven brothers, and in one particular place in, in the Bible, it especially in ancient times, if a woman's husband died without leaving children, uh, the, the brother could marry her so that she would not be bereft and, and never have a chance to have children. And that was very important in the ancient world. And so this woman marries one brother, he dies. The second brother, he dies. Third brother, you know, they, they, seven brothers, it's, it's very unrealistic. But um, all seven die. She never has any kids. She dies Okay, Jesus, at this future resurrection you believe in, whose wife will she be? So it's meant to paint the resurrection as seeming a little silly, ridiculous. Um, the implication in the question, though, is that marriage is, I, 
inherently between one man and one woman. She couldn't be married to all seven. That just couldn't be. So it has to be one. Jesus takes their question, and with them, he, he just cuts through it all. And, and he says, um, the problem is, you don't know the Scriptures. You don't know. The Sadducees, they don't know the Scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. The problem is, is you don't really believe this book is true, and, and they don't understand it. For them, it is a handy book for running the temple, not, not a book where God is revealing himself to his people, not a book where the living God has spoken to, to his followers. And Jesus then goes on to say, so what will happen when the, the dead from the rise? It says, there will no longer be marriage. It says, we who, who rise with him will be like the angels who are, who are in heaven. Now, be clear. We will be like the angels. We do not die and become angels. Do not believe what Hollywood says, right? We do not die and become angels. We are like the angels in one particular way in that we will no longer reproduce. Our number will be set, right? In the rising of the dead. So the angels, they don't reproduce. They don't marry, and so there will no longer be new marriages. Now, will you recognize your spouse? Absolutely. Will you still, in a sense, have that close relationship with your spouse in, in heaven or in the eternity, in the eternal age? Absolutely. Uh, but you also have a good relationship with all believers. And, and, and marriage is given for this life, not for the age to come. You know, it's till death do us part. So he's saying, no, marriage won't be quite what you're thinking as it is in this age. So Jesus answers their question, but then he hits one solid argument for the resurrection just to, to come. And, and he does it from the part of the Bible they accept, that is the Torah. And he says, don't you know, and this is in Exodus 3, don't you remember when God was talking to Moses at the burning bush what he said? And how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Well, those guys had died 400 years before that. And yet, God can't be the God of the dead. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive in God's presence. Just as all who know the Lord, all who are in a relationship with him. They're, and they're waiting for that day when they will be raised again to life. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. So Jesus not only answers their question, their question they ask, he answers the question they don't ask, the one that they're really thinking. What questions are non-church people asking about our faith? What, what are the issues that hold people back from believing in Jesus? And at our 9 a.m. group, people kind of answered some of that. Some, some said, you know, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? How, how does God allow children to die? I mean, the really tough ones. Um, and we can come up with really tough questions. But sometimes when people ask questions, they're not really looking for the answers. They're, they're using the questions to win an argument 
or they're using the questions to put God or Jesus at a distance. And that, I think, is what we see in our passage, but I think we see it in real life. I think many in the world view religion, um, especially Christianity, as a political thing, right? In fact, they view everything as about politics because effectively for them, politics is their religion. So their, their only way of evaluating anything, especially religion, is at how it votes. And so they'll say, well, you see, evangelicals, they vote this way, but the black churches, they'll vote this way. Oh, and the evangelical Hispanics, they'll vote this way. I don't know if you read that stuff in, in the media, but, but they evaluate churches and religion purely through the mode of politics. For them, everything is about politics, status, and power. And that's what I think the Pharisees were doing, right? They were putting up this pose of being, you know, faithful to God, but really, they're more in fo- they were more focused on impressing people than God. And they were seeking after status and power, as were the Herodians, seeking power through, through staying loyal to Rome. The message of Christ is not just a means for power and status, but instead it's the only way to receive grace from God and to be right with him. It's the only way to get connected to the God who made us. That's the message of the gospel. That's what we, we, we offer. And some people can't hear that because all they hear is politics. And that's all they want to do is argue about. How can we ever overcome and, and really respond to such a question? And I was thinking about what, what strategy could we have at East Glenville? And, and the only one I can come up with is, is what it says in 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. Acts of humble service, instead of seeking power and status, coming in, in humility, willing to serve others, that just might get behind the attitude, just might get behind the blinders that they have, that they might take a second look at Jesus. The other way the world views the beliefs of Christians is through the lens of psychology. They, they see our beliefs about miracles and about a creator God, that that's all unbelievable. They view religion in general as just psychological comfort food for people to feel better about themselves or to understand things. And so they will explain all way all the miracles and all the the biblical truths and the final judgment. Well, what what really counts is the, the psychology that leads people to believe. And I've encountered this actually in the church at times. I, I know of pastors who, they don't actually believe the events of the Bible are real. Um, they're just spiritual truths that, that help people understand themselves and maybe find themselves better. I think that's about where the Sadducees were. Jesus uses a word to describe them. He, he says they are greatly in error or greatly astray. And the word he uses, I found interesting, is 
planaste in Greek, planaste. And it comes for the same word as we use for planets. The planets were the wanderers in the sky. The planetes in Greek are the stars are fixed in their circuit around, but planets wander throughout the constellations. And Jesus used the same root word, planaste, that, that they're wanderers. They've wandered astray from true belief in God. Um, they've memorized the laws, but they don't know the God behind it. They don't believe in the God who gave them those laws. The Word of God is not just a bunch of nice stories to teach our kids, but instead is the means by which we can know God and know his ways. God has chosen to reveal himself to us. And the strategy I suggest that we use to try to overcome or answer those questions is is showing how what we believe makes sense. Taking the scriptures and explaining how it is real within our world. In 1 Peter 3, he says, in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, the Lord is holy, always be prepared to give an answer, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have, but do so with gentleness and respect. And our goal here at East Glenville, our strategy to answer those tough questions is, is show how when you understand it right, this book makes sense. God has answers in here. Let me show you how it might make sense for you. That's how I suggest we try to respond to those tough questions. Um, And I do want your help in one way, is what questions are non-church people asking? And maybe if you're on um, watching our live stream, if you want to type that into the the, um, comments or if you want to share with me later, You know, what questions have you actually heard or been asked? You know, why do Christians believe this? Or how does this make sense as Christians? Um, Because I want to be able to try to respond to those as as we, you know, as we teach and talk here at East Glenville. And the thing to realize, though, is sometimes questions are given not to seek understanding, but merely to start an argument, to keep God at a distance. But then... Sometimes God is doing a work in someone's heart. Maybe they're asking that question because there's something going on. And God's starting to get their attention in a new way. And maybe they're asking because God's starting to lead them. And you could play a role in, in helping them discover the truth about the God who loves them. And I, I've changed how I was going to approach the third the third encounter, the one that um, starts in Matthew 12, 28. This one is about the scribe. And it says in our passage, um, I have it on the sermon sheet, but just one verse. It talks about the scribe this way. And it says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? I had started preparing for this thinking, oh, this is another trap. But then as I just studied Mark, I wondered, I think this guy is starting to wonder. Maybe he originally came with the idea of, oh yeah, I'm going to hit Jesus with this question. 
right? Maybe he had, he had a zinger in mind. But when he saw Jesus' answers to the other questions, he's like, there's something to this guy. I want to learn more. And so he still asked his question, but maybe now he was more receptive to the answer, and we could sort of see that in what, in what happens. And his question is really simple. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, that's a, that's, a, that's a scribe kind of question. Who are the scribes? The scribes are the religious scholars, right? They're the ones who studied the Bible. And, and, and what do scribes do? What do religious leaders love to do? Debate, right? We love to argue this and that. And you get us on some religious topic and, or, his, you know, you get us on Calvinism or Reformed or, you know, Arminian. We'll, we'll just get in this big, long debate. That's... We can't help ourselves, right? That's, that's the scribe, right? He, and, and he's thinking debates and arguments. But so he asked this question thinking, oh, yeah, what kind of debate can we get going? Which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus gives him a straight-up answer. So he, he, he answers it rather clearly and says simply this, and he quotes the Old Testament. There is one God. God is one. And we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second command that goes with it is we're to love others as ourselves. So he gave his answer, and the scribe, interestingly, responds, says, yeah, you're right. That's it. And, and he, he goes on to add a little bit to what Jesus said. He says, you're right, to love God and to love others is much greater than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices that you could give. All the stuff we do, all this religious temple stuff and animals dying and all that, that means nothing compared to what you just said, Jesus. And Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Hmm. What does that mean? That's interesting in of itself. And what I think overall we take from this is the teachings of Jesus are not just interesting questions to debate, but must be put into practice in our everyday life. It's not, we don't just learn the Bible because, well, we love to answer these theological questions and kind of know all this history and all this stuff. We study this because we believe that God can shape our life through it. And there's truths in here we need to grasp for ourselves. And so the strategy to respond to this kind of question is, is our mission statement. Learning to love God and love others as we follow Jesus together. That's what we're trying to be here at East Glenville. We're still learning. There's things we're still figuring out how to, how to live this out. But that's what we want to do. As, as together as this community of, of believers. Maybe you're here today and you're asking questions. Um, maybe you're still trying to figure out the Jesus stuff and what it means for you. And just want you to know one thing. Jesus can handle whatever questions you have to ask. Right? You don't need to be afraid to asking questions. And if you want to ask it of, of people here, or me, or there's lots of people capable of, of maybe helping you with some of those questions. Or if you just want to keep coming 
and watching and, and taking it in and trying to figure this out, you are welcome here. That's, that's what we want to be, is a place where people can fig, start to figure it out in their life. Um, just beware of this. Sometimes we use questions to keep the Lord at a distance rather than draw near. Sometimes at some point you got to get beyond the questions and say, I don't know it all, but what I believe I'm going to trust in and I'm going to say yes to the Lord. As a church, I want us to think about this. What questions are people outside the church asking about our faith? What questions have you heard? And are we ready to answer those questions? Are we ready to respond in some way? And if I could just, re that's not in your bulletin or anywhere on the screen, but just the three, the three strategies I'm suggesting that we do. One, we proclaim Christ by being humble servants in our community, in our neighborhoods. Second, I suggest we, we teach and share how our faith in Christ and how the word of God makes sense in life. And third, we need to learn together how to love God and how to love others. May God teach us to do all these things so that we can answer those questions and people can find his son here at East Glendale. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you that, that you are the answer. And I know sometimes the, the people of this world get confused or they're hostile or they're afraid of religion or they're afraid of religious people or they keep their distance. But, but Lord, we are convinced that you love them and you are working to draw them near. Lord, may we have an attitude of love towards those in our life who don't know you. May we share with them the good news in a way that with gentleness and respect um, and that can help them see and understand. Lord, I know each of us know, know someone who might fit this category. And so just in the silence of your hearts right now, friends, just, just lift up that one person that, that you want to see come to, come to understand Jesus.